Hello and welcome to the TechQ podcast, hosted by myself, Ben Shinubi. And Rosie Binfield. Today we have an amazing guest with us sitting down in the TechQ world. He is an author. He is a uh, evangelist, we'll say that, of DevOps. <laughs> he is a um, instructor or a teacher on Udemy. A, a talker in many different um, realms around. The, you've spoken in multiple different conferences around the world. Nineteen, to be exact, over the last twelve months. Maybe I yeah, didn't count. You, you counted my com- oh, conference. I did count them. <laughs> <laughs> Sad, isn't it? <laughs> we have Victor. That, that's spooky. Let me tell you that. <laughs> We're gonna get a restraining order. Oh, no. <laughs> Victor Farsik, welcome, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. It's very nice to have you. Um, we're very privileged to have you on, on the show. Um, so, Victor, first of all, I wanted to start sort of like with your background and where you've come to today as a... It says in your, in, on your on your um, LinkedIn and also in introductions on CloudBees, it says you're a software delivery strategist and developer advocate at CloudBees. Yes. So... Um, sort of like how did you come to that overall like title how did you arrive at that because nobody really knows what I do (laughs) and there is no really any team that does what I do Mm -hmm. so I think that we invented somebody invented a random title that doesn't equally doesn't exist (laughs) so that I'm covered right (laughs) I I don't don't think it's just random words because it's random stuff I do. That's so what is it? What's this random collection of th- things that you do actually do? Uh, it mostly depends on what I'm interested in at in any given moment. So I, I normally I like to play with tech. I pick a new subject at least once a year, maybe twice a year, and then explore that subject in depth. And uh, that exploration ends up being maybe a book, maybe a course, maybe talks. Uh, I've worked with a lot of companies and then I advise them based on what I knew from before and maybe that specific area that I'm exploring and stuff like that. So it's, it's like, uh, you know, like, like a kid uh, that needs a different brand of candy every once in a while. How often do you go through this cycle of uh, being able to look at or taste a new bit of candy that you haven't tasted before? Uh, twice a year at least. <laughs> so, yeah. so very often. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I, I never know what, what I would, I'll be doing next. What are you currently discovering? Chaos engineering. Oh. Do you want to explain a bit about that? It's extremely satisfying. <laughs> uh, so, kind of, there is, it's very satisfying if you, when when you get really you know you you, you get mad and you do destroy stuff mm. that's very satisfying but there are consequences to that of course now with chaos engineering is the same thing but without consequences because the goal is to destroy stuff to st- to see what is destroyable uh basically what happens if we destroy a data center oh wow, nothing okay. should happen if something happens that's a clear sign that we need to redesign something right mm. what happens when we if I if I uh, I don't know and un- 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 uh, remove a plug on something or if I stop networking and stuff like that, so it's like destroying things but for a good cause. That's like me pressing the red button when it tells me not to, almost. Exactly, mm. exactly. It's just that there are a lot of buttons. <laughs> <laughs> what's the What's the latest thing that you actually destroyed? Uh, th- th- my own cluster, at least a couple of times a, a day. 
<laughs> and what did you learn from that? That uh, it is hard to make it indestructible. Oh, really? Hard, yes. Okay. So how? What? what would go on. Go on. But it, it kind of basically you you go in levels, right? Kind of you start low and say, what happens if I destroy uh, a pod? And then you discover, oh, yeah, when I destroy a pod, uh, that means that I should be creating a deployment instead of a pod. Excellent. What happens when I do this? And then you go higher and higher and higher and higher until you get maybe to the whole data center. And then you say, now I need to spread my data center across the whole region. Right. And then what happens when the region goes down? So there is always, you will always get to the point that you, you destroy things that cannot be repaired. Yeah. It's just that <coughs> how far can you get in that destruction uh, without uh, uh, until you get to the point that you say, now it's not worth uh, fixing this anymore. So I'm really interested to see how you arrived at sort of like where you are today. So going back, you started at GTEC and you were... Uh, no, uh, that's the middle. No, that's at the middle. Where was the very first sort of like thing that you started off? How did you come to where you are today so what wh where did you get how did you get to this what's your journey like can i be prosecuted uh, based on what i'm saying <laughs> it depends podcast? on what comes out where did you start off victor i started by being the major distributor of pirate software for whole europe okay what was that website called there was no website because there was no internet at that time so how did you distribute it by shipping it by mail Wow. In oh. On cassette tapes. So you're old school. You know, yeah, 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 I know cassette tapes. Yeah. Yeah. I had like 10 double deckers in my home where I was just copying cassettes all the time. So you were Pirate Bay before Pirate Bay. Yes, exactly. I was Pirate Bay, but uh, my distributor was a postman. <laughs> <laughs> and then where did that lead you on to? Huh? Where did that lead you on to? What was the next adventure? Uh, next, so in parallel with that, so I, I learned how to program very young. Uh, I think uh, I had that business like when I was 12 or something like that. Um, and I did some applications for some companies, for school and stuff like that. And then at one moment I decided that uh, that's not sexy really. Really, who, who wants to date a uh, nerd? Nobody. <laughs> well, uh, well, I, I, I counted that nerds or nerds in in quotes are actually running the world now. N now, yes, but in nineties, they were not running the. They were just nerds. They were just uh, virgin with seventy five <laughs> years old. That's, that's what they were. Uh, so I decided I need to do something with my life, and I decided to, to become an opposite, the sexiest profession in, on, in the world. And what's that? Archaeology. <laughs> <laughs> it's not funny. It's Indiana Jones. Who was the sexiest person at that time? Indiana Jones. Yeah, okay, of course, you know. of course. Uh, 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 I will uh, uh. give you that. As okay. There you go. There you go. Indiana Jones. And let me tell you, it was more successful than being a nerd. <laughs> so where did archaeology take you? Then uh, very quickly they figured out that they need computers as well and stuff like that. So they pulled me back in and, and I continued doing the same. I mean, do, doing software for archaeologists, uh, archaeology. And then uh, I dropped from archaeology and went back officially, worked from one company into another. And then at some moment I landed in GTEC, which was, I don't know, early 2000, something like that. Okay. <coughs> so from all of that, um, that journey that you led up to that point, what have you learned 
from that sort of like myriad of different roles what sort of things were you <coughs> were you taking from those different roles that you could get you to that point at GTEC uh <coughs> what did they learn <laughs> did you learn anything <laughs> I'm, no no I'm, 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 my brain is trying to work very hard to come up with a clever answer but I'm not sure that there is one uh I don't know uh, uh, people do ask me that question every once in a while and to me it's I really don't have an answer it's kind of just continuously trying to figure out things to solve problems I mean I, I guess that the major thing would be that you spend most of your working uh, working hours trying to solve problems yeah and that sounds kind of silly yes we are all solving problems but actually vast majority of, of engineers are not solving problems what are they doing they're just writing getter setters in Java. <laughs> uh, they're just kind of writing repetitive, same silly code that does not really do significantly anything important. Uh, so vast majority of engineers are not really solving problems. They're just, uh, you know, changing colors on a website, uh, writing another getter setters, uh, connecting it with uh, Spring or something like that. And I was somehow that that was to me always boring. So it was always trying to solve a problem and I think that 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 accelerated my learning probably more than uh, uh, is the case if, with some other people so you <coughs> once you were a software developer then did you move into you said move into architecture roles and being able to look at the overall architecture of an entire application suite yeah I, I kind of I was notorious for changing roles at least once or twice a year or companies right uh, so yes, I was I was a software manager, uh, project manager, technical lead, systems architect, software architect, um, many many different things. Right. Uh, so and uh, what I mentioned before, or I didn't, I don't know anymore. Anyway, uh, I, I get bored very fast, so uh, being in one role for a long time is kind of boring. Right. Why would so anybody? So that's the art of the curious <coughs> mind, though, isn't it? Really? Yeah, I mean, th th there is a problem with that. So kind of uh, at the same time, I never really uh, because of that, I, I would I was often rejecting good positions, you know, kind of like, oh, would you like to be director of this? Uh, it's going to be boring. <laughs> but it's, it's very hard to kind of like balance that uh, doing really interesting things uh, and uh, not starve to death at the same time. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's I think. A lot of people in the industry are trying to get that clear balance between the appetite that they have for the technical, but also the sort of level that they think that they're they're worth. You know that sort of that that, that clear defined sort of top tug and tail that they have. So, <coughs> and that's one of the things I think that I've been seeing last years as being a big change is that more and more companies are realizing that tech is important and uh, changing culture and what's or not. And as a result, I think that there is increased number of companies where you can you can progress in your career while still being technical. Yeah. In vast majority, uh, in almost all companies in the past and still vast majority today, oh, you want more money? Excellent, you need to become a manager. Kind of, you, you need to kind of like stop doing what you're good at if you want more bigger salary. Whatever that good at is, I'm saying now technical, it can be anything else. Uh, somehow 
company structures are organized in a way that uh, the more money you earn, you're earning more money by moving to positions where you're less competent to do the job. Mm. Okay. Very, very interesting mindset. I know Rosie was, we were talking about um, <coughs> sort of like your views on also on CTOs because we've listened to the podcast around that. So that's something that we want to touch on a bit later. But before we get to that, I do want to come and come on to sort of the realm of books that you've been able to to write all the way from uh, the Devil's to DevOps Toolkit 2.0 up until 2.5. Don't buy it by any in any circumstance. Why not? Why are you not selling <laughs> no, your no, book? No, under under any <laughs> circumstance. Uh, no, because I wrote it like uh, 2.0. I wrote it like five years ago, maybe yeah, something yeah, yeah. like that. Six. Uh, it's okay. <laughs> So the DevOps, you've got multiple different DevOps toolkits and you're saying we shouldn't get them. Is it because they're out of date? Or? Yeah, because uh, I, I, write, I write very technical hands-on books about what I believe is the best in some area at that very moment. So whatever, was, whatever I was recommending five years ago, it, it must be is horrible today well yeah simply because, because so many things changed five years ago of course right? technology moves at such a rapid rate that what you were doing last year you can't even begin to implement sometimes in, in the next year because there'll be something new and definitely you know um, better out there to be able to use but there are some foundations in the books that you have written especially around the truth around devops in the devops paradox and the podcast of the same name yes so I feel when I was reading that book, a lot of the themes that were coming out with were interesting. The way you were asking people, so what do you think? What is the meaning of DevOps? What, what, where do you think DevOps is going? And I want to flip that question around to yourself. So you've been in the industry for a very, very long time. You've seen how the evolution of technology and or people within the industry has changed. What is your opinion right now on DevOps and where do you think it's going in the future? DevOps is more almost completely misunderstood practice that is going nowhere. Okay. Uh, so the whole idea about, and this is not about DevOps, I think this happens to all other practices, Agile for example, or anything you want. So an idea is born and that's, let's say DevOps in this case, and Patrick Bois and then people who followed had a very simple idea and that is that development and operations should work together in a single team in charge of an application to deliver it to production right kind of it's uh, creating self-sufficient teams and understanding that uh, second half of the life cycle of an application meaning deployment monitoring and stuff is just as important as, as important as the first and that should be a team that does it yeah but in practice, what we got is concepts like DevOps engineer, invented thing that means nothing in my head, uh, DevOps department, DevOps team, all those things. And they're usually 
result of uh, somebody using the term for marketing purposes. Uh, now, marketing purposes are not necessarily bad. Sometimes they help us promote something even more, but very often they're they are just uh, misusing the term, whichever term it is, and in this case, DevOps. Like, for example, if you take, if you take current software landscape, you will discover that uh, almost all tools we spoke of, speak about are dev DevOps tools. They are designed to be DevOps tools, right? Even though they existed like 15 years before DevOps even was invented as a word, right? Kind of, you just put a sticker, this is a DevOps tool, a tool, and then you put a sticker on the door of somebody's department, this is a DevOps department, and then somehow things magically changed. They don't. Mm. Uh, I, I do believe it's a great idea, it's a great concept, it's, it's, it's kind of evolution of agile, uh, but it is misused, like, like most other things. Do you almost think they're reinventing the wheel? Yeah, of course. We, we, we had, you know, we, this is especially interesting when you speak with old timers, you know, the people who were, who were doing some heavy tech in the 80s and 90s. And they, they, they usually wonder kind of like, why, why the heck are we talking about all those things these days in conferences as breakthroughs kind of, yeah, yeah, we worked as a team like in 80s. <laughs> you guys forgot that such a thing exists. It's, it's your problem, it's not our problem. Uh, we had microservices a long time ago. I mean, whole Linux is microservices and yet we are talking about them now and so on and so forth. I think that simply um, it's, it's kind of cyclical and uh, every once in a while we need to invent a new term so that uh, the previous term because previous term gets misused misunderstood and then we, we come up with a new name for the same things just so to redirect people on a on, on, on a better path in a way so what are the good things that have come out of devops good things yeah uh a, a lot of good things i i think that uh, even though that's not really idea is that uh, I, I think as certain set of practices and tools uh, came into one umbrella now. Um, containers and uh, microservices and uh, everything is code uh, and, and a few other really cool things which are not really DevOps but somehow they fell into that same umbrella which has the DevOps all around uh, that, that, that became a really positive thing I think. I, I do believe that there is an increased number of companies who are adopting the approach of having autonomous teams. Mm -hmm. And I think that that could be the, the, major, the major advantage, the major improvement that we are seeing. So in your, your world or your, your eyes, um, do you see companies that are using DevOps in this purest form or what it was meant for? So not having maybe a, a a DevOps engineer or someone that is, no. um, you don't see that? No, no, vast majority of companies don't live in 2020. <laughs> well, vast majority of companies live in 1999. <laughs> I'm happy if they pass to 2000. Right. Kind of like, they're so advanced, they can travel back in time and yet they cannot figure out tech. It's really incredible. <laughs> uh, so no, vast so. There, there is one very special thing about the, our industry that I think doesn't exist anywhere else. 
And that is that if you, if you look at, I don't know, maybe medicine or engineering, you have the best in a class and the worst, and you have everything in between. Our industry is not like that. You have 5% at the top, then a huge chasms, huge emptiness, nothing, and then everybody else. And most of the companies are simply everybody else. Mm. Uh, most of the companies are managing to survive by sheer brute force. Uh, when, I, when I look at, uh, let's say, financial institutions, I'm not going to name any names, but, and they kind of like, they have thousands and thousands of people employed to do their software. And realistically, successful companies do the same job with tens or hundreds of people. So people like, you know, like a Netflix or uh, even like a, a maybe a Monzo yeah. would be good examples of how they're being able to innovate at such a rapid rate with a low amount of people to be able to do that. I would actually say that they're capable to innovate precisely because they have low amount of people. Because when you have thousands of people, then your preoccupation is to figure out, are they all working? Are they taking their hours? How expensive they are? I mean, you start... You, s you spend so much time in bureaucracy and administration that you're forgetting what really matters. Uh, I mean, a good example is Docker, right? Uh, Docker as a company in its golden days, not now. Now it's yeah. like kind of, uh, now, now it's a zombie, right? But in its golden days, they, they managed to, to create software that was used by absolutely everybody. And they had many different applications, Docker, Docker Compose, Docker Swarm, blah, blah, many different products, right? Used by millions, extremely successful by any, any criteria at that time. And yet all that was done by uh, maybe 50 people. That was at the time of Solomon Hike, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Mm. So 50 people managed to manage like 10 applications and services and, and what's or not, and very successful ones. So we're not talking about some tiny kids project mm. and then somebody else comes and says oh yeah we need uh, we need software for atms we need uh, 570 people to to write that software i mean it's just silly it's uh, you need five yeah. to be able to to maintain it develop it push it out get it to the public yeah i, I definitely 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 do agree so uh, <coughs> In one of the latest episodes of the DevOps Paradox, you spoke about trying to make, or is um, uh, on-premise, trying to make on-premise great again? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that on-premise can and should be great. There is no real reason. If you would, so if you would, if you're big enough, first of all, you need to be big enough for on-premise to make sense, right? If you're talking about tens of servers, why why would you create your data center for that? If you're talking about thousands, then yeah, that might make a lot of sense. But the, the sad truth is that I'm yet to see a company that now knows how to do on-premise. Uh, it's just that theoretically it would be a great idea. Uh, but in practice, I'm yet to see that. I think a lot of the companies that are move or have on-prem, I've just had that from a legacy standpoint. Yeah. So they just need to continue with that. M they've con they've had that mindset for a very long time. 
So being able to go into the cloud, even though it's readily available, is a scary thing for them to be able to do. Of course, there's also stuff around legal stuff like GDPR is happening in, in, in Europe that has to, you have, sometimes you have to have those policies where you have to have stuff on, on site, but I think that may be a mindset. But, you know, I believe that those companies will not have on-prem, useful on-prem, until they spend a couple of years in cloud. Because you, the companies lost points of reference. You think that you have something useful because your only point of reference is yourself. You don't really know what good is. So go to Amazon, Azure, Google, wherever you want, spend three years there, and then when you really learn what is the reference, mm. what is, with what you're comparing with, and after that, if you say, I can do it just as well myself. Yes, please go and do that. But you need to go to Cloudy for no other reason than to learn how infrastructure as a service is done well. But, but Victor, I'm a bank. All of my stuff and all of the information that I hold is personal. There are legislations and laws that say I need to have my data internally to to my company i cannot actually pass it through to the cloud to the cloud what would you say to someone like that uh, first of all you could theoretically keep data out of cloud that uh, that would n first of all doesn't have to be 100 percent all or nothing always that's never working that would be the same thing as saying i i, I have to have something mainframe theref therefore everything must be mainframe uh, right that's not the logic uh, so it's never everything here or everything there to begin with. So hybrid is, is quite okay and quite normal. <coughs> and by the way, nothing ever goes away. So no matter how much you, you are capable of going to cloud, you are never going to move everything to cloud because of a bunch of legacy issues and so on and so forth. Second, uh, many of the reasons that companies are mentioning sometimes are valid, but very often are invalid. People are often confusing uh, legislation with uh, their interpretation of how to implement the legislation created and that, impl that implementation created 10 years ago, right? I almost never meet people who, who are really capable of telling me, okay, so what is really the objective? Don't tell me I cannot SSH into a server or it needs to be in my data center. First of all, if you're on-prem, uh, very often on-prem is still given to some other company to manage. Mm. So if, if you give to some local company, is that really that different than, than if you give it to local Microsoft? Mm. Uh, it's not. Is it really below your desk? Is that is that the goal? Kind of nobody, I think that I'm not saying that there is no truth in that. It's just that I think that people are developing self-defense mechanism against making any change. And then they invent things that don't exist. Uh, and not even consciously, kind of like, that's how brain works, right? Kind of like, it's a defense mechanism. Yeah, resistance. Resistance, mm. exactly. I mean, uh, one, one, one financial institution, which I'm, uh, I cannot name, but I love the approach a couple of years ago. They said, okay, we're gonna go cloud, we can stay on-prem. Um, every team can choose by themselves. 
except that we are going to switch and say cloud default you need to demonstrate why you cannot go there if it's legislation for real and if you really really have you're not inventing yeah you can stay but it needs to be a real real reason and are, are they successful in doing uh, this implementing this yes they're they're <coughs> very they're relatively successful yes that is a really interesting way in which to look at it by by making cloud the default yeah uh, so kind of uh, and and that's the thing uh, most companies somehow the the the, the the culture is in a way that you need to uh, demonstrate why innovation is a good thing. Mm. Why, and they switched it around, kind of, you need to demonstrate why, why you're still status quo. Kind of, you need to have numbers to say, I have, I cannot change because of this and that, instead of, I want to change because of this and that. Mm. Uh, so it's kind of innovation by default instead of uh, status quo by default. That's that's the difference, I think. One thing that's always striked me is um, a lot of technologies and, and vendor technologies we have now <coughs> are almost making, and this is a, this is just my personal opinion, making the next generation of developers and IT professionals a tad bit lazy, because now you don't need to know how that service works how it integrates into many different other services it's all taken out of your hands so whereby before you had maybe uh, an architect that would manage or someone that would manage your infrastructure you don't need to have that now it's all outsourced to the local cloud provider what are your thoughts around that do we do we need to be able to have those those specialists within the industry that know the ins and outs of networking that knows the ins and outs of you know how do you ssh onto a onto a term through a terminal how am i going to basic stuff create folders and 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 all of that the sort of thing. what's your thoughts on that so uh, we do need those experts simply because every once in a while things go south and then somebody needs to really understand what's going on so it cannot be that such a person doesn't exist but for vast majority of people uh they should be concentrated of what, on what brings value to the company, right? Uh, me creating a VM brings zero value. Me setting up a Kubernetes cluster has no value. Networking has no value. None of those things have bring create value, right? Me creating a killer feature that will be adopted by my users and increase my market share, that's a value. Now, that what I'm saying sounds disrespectful. I'm not saying saying that having s we should not have servers. We should, of course, that's a necessary thing, but it's not really my core business. My core business is not to run infrastructure. Almost nobody's business is that. Mm. Uh, if I can give that to professionals and, and, and expect that to work and work well, then yes, why not? That would just allow me to focus on what differentiates me from my competition. Um, and uh, uh, now the people you were mentioning, they're absolutely necessary, but they will mostly be working for those providers, not for me. But what about, that's gonna be the top tier of people that will be working for, what happens to the rest of them? Uh, they will- uh, up Upskill, upskill on something else. Change skill to something else, that mm. happens all the time. That would be the same thing as we say, oh, what happens with DB2 experts? Mm. What happens with, uh, 
Oracle experts. I mean, those technologies are going away, right? Uh, and then, and I assume that those people are changing uh, what they do, uh, evolving. Now, the real issue that we are having is that there are s there are many people that have 20 years of repeated experience. You know, you're extremely, you're big expert on something and uh, every year you've been doing that something over and over again. And then when that something goes away, you're in deep trouble because you're basically junior level on whatever else uh, comes after that. And those are the types of people that usually are fighting for status quo and you know you're a subject matter expert in a company you hope that you're going to retire in that company if that company goes down then you're going to be jobless and all those things um, generally speaking there are two types of people in our industry ones who just are evolving with the industry and and the others that are becoming expert in something specific and hoping that that specific will last forever yeah <coughs> no, i definitely definitely agree i know rosie's um got some questions around leadership but before we move on to that i want to stick on sort of like the technology part so you you're an advocate so you've been working at cloud bees for some time mm -hmm. you've always said that you change stuff a habitual changer of items what's kept you at cloud bees for this amount of time uh cloud bees have for most of the time cloud bees have no idea what i'm working on <laughs> <laughs> but they still they still give you a platform and be able to give you the opportunity yeah, to be so able to do that no I, I am actually very grateful um, sounds like a really good gig <laughs> yeah so we have kind of it's not that we put it in those words but we have a mutual understanding that uh, uh, that I I'm, I'm decent at what I do and uh, I don't fare well under being observed and managed and all those things. So CloudBiz gives me almost complete freedom to, to do what, what I believe makes sense. And uh, they benefit from it and I benefit from it. Uh, so it's a, it's a mutual benefit. And uh, I think that the number of companies like that is increasing, but it's still very, very small in number. You know, companies who give people there is never a complete 100% freedom, but very, yeah. very high level of freedom. That's, that's still very rare. And for someone like yourself, it sounds like the autonomy that you're being given just increases your creativity. Yeah, so, I, I, so uh, you know, it's usually a problematic at the beginning. Uh, no company wants to accept that from, from, from day zero, no? Uh, after a while, CloudBees, I guess, saw that it gets some benefit from 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 that type of attitude and and um, i get ben i benefit from them benefiting and all those <laughs> things so and i think it was uh we got introduced by because we did some work last year with uh, one of your colleagues on jenkins x and i've seen some of the stuff that you've been you've been working on jenkins x for the people that don't know do you want to just give a, a quick brief overview of jenkins x and the sort of use cases that it, it, it helps with so Jenkins X is not Jenkins. That's the first thing to understand. It's no. a, I, I personally think it's a bad name because it, it anyways, uh, it's a completely reimagined way or method or a process or set of tools to do um, everything related to development inside of Kubernetes. 
Yeah, because I saw one of your talks and it was creating a complete project from end to end, from the Git repo all the way to the, the very end without basically having to do much. You just put in some commands into Jenkins X and it creates all of that for you. Yes. So it, it makes complicated things simple. Now, the real issue is that uh, today we have Kubernetes. Kubernetes here is here to stay. There is no discussion about that anymore. And now com Kubernetes is extremely complex. Figuring out how to do what you need to do in Kubernetes can easily take you half a year, year easily. Uh, so what we're trying to do is to make those choices for you. Like, how are you going to build container images? And then first people's, uh, people's reaction at first is always, I'm going to use Docker. And then I'm going to tell you that that's a horrible idea because it's extremely insecure because you're doing things uh, without the Kubernetes knowing about it, blah, 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 blah. And then, uh, then you say, okay, excellent. So we need to explore 17 other solutions if it's not going to be Docker, which one is going to be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Instead, we tell you, okay, immediately out of the box, you're going to build with Kaniko. Uh, if you want explanation, here's the explanation why. Otherwise, just don't worry about it. It's transparent for you. And then there are hundreds of choices like that that need to be made one way or another or not made and then you suffer consequences. So we, we made a lot of different choices and put them all together into meaningful process from the beginning to the end. And beginning is literally nothing like what you mentioned before. I want to start working on a new application. Uh, I don't know what I need, but I know it's going to, going to be Node.js. Mm. There you go. Uh, and just magic happens. Ultimately, we believe that uh, uh, a developer should be able to do everything that needs to be done uh, without spending eternity learning about underlying technology. And the only tool that developers should have is Git. Basically, you push things to Git and then magic is happening in the background. That's the idea. I got, I got, actually, I got something to pick on with you on that. So you did mention at one point, you said there should, no, there should only be a, a single master branch. There should be no feature branches. And I want to ask L why. No, uh, no, feature branches are okay as long as they're very, very short-lived. Okay, how short-lived? Uh, hours <laughs> and then merge <laughs> back in merge back into the, the master, master branch yes, yes why why do you feel like that because uh, what 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 do you prefer half a year branches i don't know i'm not a developer but you know if i'm i'm taking it from your standpoint you're saying a feature branch should only be a uh, only be alive for a matter of days and then yes. you merge it back into the master because that's how long you should have that branch for because we, we're all working let's say 10 of us are working on a project right yeah. uh until i merge my stuff in my master you are not uh, taking my stuff into account yeah yeah agree. Uh, I, I, i'm being uh, uh there is a i'm misaligned from you over extended extended period of time and we are really really working in separation uh, if I merge it every once in a while, like once a day or something like that, then actually you will always pick up my my changes and you will always have latest and we will be working together on the same code. If if I don't do that, we are not working on the same code. We're just having illusion and then 
uh, three months later, we're going to merge both of us to the master and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> and then we're going to wonder why it takes uh, four months to fix uh, three months uh, of accumulated problems and so on and so forth. So uh, uh, it's, it's, it's about cooperation between, uh, between people. Uh, and but in even more importantly, I think it's about uh, a mental setup in your head. I'm supposed to have always my code in uh, in in working condition. I should not be allowed to to generate. Am I allowed? To yeah, same. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> to kind of generate for for weeks. And then we're going to figure out how to stabilize that. No, no, no. Everything I do should be potentially production ready and stable at every given moment. And the proof that that's the case is that I'm pushing it to master all the time. Mm. I'm making it production ready all the time. Uh, otherwise, we have that notion that it is okay to make it not working for extended period of time because th that happens to be easier for you. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think it's a good idea. That's, that's a, a very valid point um, and I think that is something that a lot of developers may be shaking in their boots at hearing but no it's a valid point but it's it's kind of it's almost pointless that we are uh, we are discussing what is a good thing or not good thing if we do accept that there is a 5% of, of top companies that are so way ahead of us all we have to do is to see what they're doing. Maybe not copy, pick a random one and copy only that one, but what, the, what is the common thing among those top five? And we know what those things are. And yet, people like to discuss whether that's a good idea or no. Of course it's a good idea. That's why they are so much ahead of you. <laughs> Maybe not exactly how Google works, but how do they work combined? Mm. What's the common thing? Yeah, and we know that merging <coughs> often, delivering often, uh, being fast and, and in small increments, we know that that works better. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, definitely. Oh, well, Rosie, I know you had some uh, questions around leadership. Oh, and people. Yes. yes. And people. And the people. If we could get rid of them, it would be so much <gasps> better. No, you are not saying that to a people person. No. You okay. Are. Okay. I'll, I'll you are. Why would you want to get I'll rid of them? I'll keep a few for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, expand on that. Why would you say if we could get rid of them? No, I'm. I'm. I was half, ex half, half joking. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that we need to get rid of people being involved for all, from all repetitive, boring, done all the time in the same way type of tasks. Okay. I think that. Uh, our jobs should be only uh, focused on creative parts of of the process mm -hmm. and nothing else. And I think that planning is creative. I think that coding is creative. Uh, I think that uh, inventing new things is creative. Uh, deploying is not creative. Uh, testing is not creative. Writing tests, yes. Testing is not great, and all those. So uh, I want to remove people from all those repetitive, repetitive things and put them to do something creative. 
and more transformational yes moving forward leading the way so would you say that there are organizations or would you say it's the smaller organizations that are those where they're being more adoptive and creative yes i mean all the in human history changes are always done by my minority that's uh, they are and then they get bigger and they grow they get bigger and they grow yeah, and then uh, some other minority comes up with uh, new things that they want to change. Yes, this is true. FinTech is a great example of that. I will give you that. Thank you. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I wanted to touch base a little bit on your um, episode on uh, CTOs. And you spoke on how there could be one specific CTO on a smaller business, but for them to actually transition to more of an enterprise level and move forward, I think Solomon was actually a good example that you gave um, at one point where he removed himself and maybe should have removed himself a lot earlier at that point. Perhaps. Yeah, he never really removed himself. He, he got they removed him. A little bit. <laughs> but it's not nice to say we removed him, so he agreed to say, I'm removing myself. Yeah, um, <laughs> from that business, yeah, yeah. of course. But um, how do you feel? Um, if you don't mind expanding further a little bit on that. Yeah, simply different different sizes and uh, different types of businesses require different skills, right? Mm. That's generic enough answer that can, it can apply to anything and it applies equally well to CTOs, right? Uh, it's not the same thing uh, if you're, so let's say that even you're small, you probably, your primary goal, assuming that you have funding, mm-hmm. your primary goal is adoption, right? So you want to convince millions of developers individually that playing with this thing makes sense. And then you, if, 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 if that same person who is capable of convincing uh, a person to play with something, that is, not, that is not necessarily the same person that can convince a company to adopt that something. Uh, because the, the criteria used to play around and the criteria used to uh, invest millions into software is completely different. So you're going to, your software is going to be built and designed differently. Uh, your approach to uh, managing your workforce is going to be different and so on and so forth. So uh, almost every company I know of that, that was successful in that, in that growth mm. uh, had to change the CTO and those that didn't usually end up with um, in a bad situation. And Docker is a good example. Yeah. Solomon was amazing convincing me as a person <coughs> to use Docker and failed to convince more than 2.5 companies to use Docker as a product. Yeah, because he went through the effectively the bell curve period, didn't he, during that. Yeah. And that's the best, I suppose, it's the best part for the innovation, the influence for your people. Um, what would you say moving forward um, for people that are like-minded or becoming CTOs where they could maybe, well, I know we spoke earlier and you said 90% will fail, 10% will succeed. Yeah. But do you think there are certain ways that maybe we could adapt and look at ourselves as individuals or even as companies as C-suites and say, actually if we change up here if we do this we could become better leaders we could expand and grow our companies in the right way but um, i guess it's all about on one hand of course individual personal capabilities and then the aspirations and so on and so forth second thing is about 
being in an environment where you can learn how to be better at whatever you want to be, right? Mm. Uh, that's why bringing a company from, uh, you know, like for Docker, bringing a company from a big company like Microsoft uh, or where SaaS or whatever was imperative at that time, and they failed to do that. Uh, because those bigger companies could have grown material capable of managing a company at that scale, right? Nobody's yeah. born with the knowledge. Uh, everybody has certain ability that, that abilities that allow them allow them to be more charismatic or, or to acquire knowledge faster, but ultimately people are built by companies. They're, we're a result of companies shaping us. So you want to find a CTO from a company who already did that before you. Uh, that's all, I guess, the logic there is to it, right? Uh, now I don't, I'm not CTO myself, rejected a position a couple of times, so I don't know the, the intricacies about day-to-day uh, -day job of, 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 of those. You are a thought leader in your own right though, to be fair. Yeah, except that I don't need to think about people's salaries and all those things, <laughs> which is kind of boring. <laughs> The boring part. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, that's fair enough. I think that's um, yeah. I think that's really really a good. I think that's it for us. Um, do you have any more questions, Rosie? No, I'm good. Okay, cool. Well, that was really 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 good, um, Victor. We really appreciate your time here. Um, thank you for joining us on the Tech Cube podcast. If you would like to get more information on Victor, please follow him on Twitter. He is on LinkedIn. <laughs> he has a number of books which he's told you not to buy. But um, I would definitely encourage people to look at the, um, the DevOps Paradox. It's a really, really good book. I've read it. So, yeah, check that out. And, um, yeah, follow Victor on all social medias. Thank you, Victor, very much for joining us. You're welcome. Yeah, appreciate it. You, you have a positive effect on me. <laughs> How so? <laughs> I swore only once in this podcast. <laughs> that, 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 that's, that's a very low figure for me. Right. Uh, maybe next time when you come I'll, again, I'll we'll, be better see. Next yeah, time, we'll yeah. get some alcohol and it'll be, it'll be a different thing. Loads of swearing. <laughs> Loads of things hanging out. <laughs> Thank you, Victor. <laughs>